Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. This week, the sequels keep coming, like The Equalizer 2. Hey, you should let somebody else do this. Like who? Anybody. You're right. I guess anybody could do it, but nobody does, Miles. Film Festival animation curators Malcolm Turner and Annie Murray talk about the scene right now. I've never seen a badly animated Pixar film. I don't think you'll ever see it. But th- but there's a lot of just wretched animation out there that, that makes, is true. <laughs> makes it into the hardtop cinemas. Yeah. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of discernment within the, the broader audience picking out the good or the bad. While director Sari Braithwaite found her attitude to censorship changed, looking at cuts of the past. The things that bothered me about the, this collection was not necessarily what the censors were bothered about. It bothered me from a sensibility very much of this time and of right now. I'm Simon Morris. This is hardly the ideal time to display your prejudices on any subject, what with regular complaints about free speech, hashtags and demands for more diversity. But movie fans are famously opinionated, particularly on their pet subjects, as anyone knows who's expressed an opinion on the recent Star Wars reboots. And woe betide anyone taking a contrary view in a cinema full of fans. We can't tell anybody else about the baby, okay? I just told Bill. Yeah, and I told Harry. I told many, many people. The other day I ran into a colleague who looked almost as woebegone as I did. He had a ticket to the sequel to the ABBA musical Mamma Mia! Mamma Mia 2, wittily subtitled Here We Go Again. I countered with my own sword of Damocles, The Equaliser 2. No subtitle because Denzel Washington doesn't need one. You have no idea what you just started. You shouldn't have gone to war with us, McCall. You got it backwards. You're going to war with me. We were sorely tempted to simply swap tickets, but of course that's the coward's way out. No, as comedian Stuart Lee said once, you have to play the room you're dealt. So he trudged off to endure all the ABBA songs that didn't make the first cut, given the unique vocal stylings of Colin Firth and Pierce Brosnan. Meanwhile, I went to the second Equaliser, and while it was better than the first one, slightly, that is the faintest of faint praise. But later in the show, a definite turn for the better. Two sections of the New Zealand International Film Festival that, in their own way, tackle prejudices and preconceptions too. (laughs) 
The regular animated section is now so overstuffed, well over 4,000 entries this year, that it warrants its own mini-festival, in Auckland at any rate. And a documentary called Censored looks at the cuts inflicted on films back in the 60s. What the hell is the matter with you? Don't get smart with me. I told you I was in a hurry. You're one quart down. Is that a way to treat a customer, crazy kid? Oh! Ah! It sounds fun, but director Sari Braithwaite soon discovered that censorship, like free speech, is a complicated subject. First up, though, Denzel Washington is back in the sequel to the reboot of a half-forgotten TV series called The Equaliser. Seen you carrying all those books around? I figured you for some kind of teacher. I'm a high-level paid government assassin. The original Equaliser featured bookish English star Edward Woodward taking on the problems of little guys when they're up against big bad guys. He equalised their chances, if you follow me, and best of all, he didn't want any money for it. Well, the two questions raised were, one, how did he pay his way? And two, how can a middle-aged Englishman beat up the bad guys so easily? First time to Turkey? No, no, no. Long time ago, different life. Now you come back? Yes, I'm looking for something. You can find whatever you wish in Turkey. Well, I still can't answer the first question, but the second one is easier in the new Equaliser films. He's Denzel Washington. And the second film opens with him, lightly disguised, on the Orient Express in Turkey. How about a man who kidnapped a little girl from her American mother? Would not be looking for such a man. It would be dangerous for you. Men like him would think that. McCall, the Equaliser's civilian name, likes to test himself by setting his stopwatch before he takes on the half-dozen or so heavies between him and Justice. He can usually get to the other side in just under 30 seconds. He still doesn't get paid, I notice. Well, just as the first Equaliser kept the co-stars to a bare minimum, Chloe Grace Moretz is the victim, I remember, and New Zealander Martin Chokas is the bad guy, so the sequel is still mostly Denzel front and centre and B-listers to one side. It's great you're helping all these random people and everything, but it's not going to fill that hole in your heart. I'm obligated to tell you these things. I'm the only friend you've got. It's a little unkind to refer to the memorable Oscar winner Melissa Leo as a B-lister, but I'm afraid if you nod off for a couple of minutes, you'll miss Melissa, despite her billing as McCall's best friend. Mac, Susan's gone. Susan worked in a dangerous world. Looked at the video, all the surveillance. Something else went on in that room. Who did this? While the Equaliser builds up a head of steam to avenge the removal of the one other name actor in the film, he hangs out in his neighbourhood, tidying up a vandalised garden and inviting a street kid called Miles to do the right thing. As we're so often invited to say during a Denzel Washington movie, what a guy. 
Hey, you should let somebody else do this. Like who? Anybody. You're right. I guess anybody could do it, but nobody does, Miles. But Denzel's fans didn't come to a movie called The Equalizer 2 to watch their man clean up the neighbourhood, literally. They're here to watch him take out the figurative trash, which means avenging Melissa Leo. McCall and Susan both used to work together in the CIA, it turns out. They're tying up loose ends. Exactly. He's a partner for seven years, Mac. It's a mistake to go to war with him. It's go time. They're going to war with me. McCall visits some more of his best friends at the agency, and since we've never met any of them before, we can only suspect that at least one of them will turn out to be, as we say in this sort of movie, dirty. No prizes for guessing who turns out to be the bad guy. Whoever we're looking for, I'm a high-level assassin. They're cleaning up. Nobody's safe. Actually, just about anyone with speaking lines is likely to be a bad guy. Otherwise, how can Denzel Washington equalise them? So, thumbnail review of The Equalizer 2. Pretty dumb, if slightly better than The Equalizer 1. They killed my friend. So I'm going to kill each and every one of them. And the only disappointment is that I only get to do it once. The first half actually included some characterization, which might have been pushed along a bit more, I thought. But star Denzel Washington and longtime Denzel director Antoine Fuqua begged to differ, and it's their money, I suppose. And looking on the bright side, at least Washington didn't sing. No ABBA songs were hurt in the making of this picture. Call 911. Who are you, Jackie Chan? <laughs> Some of the most lively and colourful entrants in the New Zealand International Film Festival come from the animation section. And this year, in Auckland at any rate, animation gets its own mini-festival within a festival. So, at a time when it seems just about every blockbuster has been at least in part digitally animated, where does that leave the real thing? We need to change people's perceptions about superheroes. And Elastigirl is our best play. Better than me? <clears throat> well, I'm joined on the line from Melbourne by long-time festival animation programmer Malcolm Turner and his new co-programmer this year, Annie Murray. Hi, both of you. Hello. G'day. How are you going? <laughs> so, Malcolm, whose idea was it to have an entire animation festival this year in Auckland? If you think about it, I've been programming animation for the New Zealand Film Festival since the mid-1990s, and if you go back to those days, we probably had 400 or so um, submissions come in. This year, we got just under 4,400 Goodness gracious. So all types of things, not just in animation, but in film and cinema and moving image. We need to represent what's happening out there in the big wide world of independent animation. You were saying in your intro that the digitization of the animation landscape in a certain sense, and that's sure. true of the blockbusters, but it's definitely not true of the auteur space. I mean, there are certainly people that use computers, and most people would use a computer to finish an animated film off in some ways, put on a soundtrack or clean up colors or whatever. But I would say probably, you know, of those 4,000 plus submissions, 
you'd be doing well if any more than a quarter of them would be regarded as as some um, CG or 3D animation. The rest of it is substantially a handmade art form. A lot of people come to that art form because they draw or they sculpt mm. or they like to move objects around. Annie, I'll get you in here because I wanted to ask you where the centres of great animation are. I know that there's always been some <laughs> fans of Europe and fans of Asia, but apparently this year a rather unexpected country has put its head above the parapet. Would that be Estonia we're referring to it there? Would be, yeah. It would be Estonia. <laughs> it's, it's been a long time running, to be honest. Um, Estonia has always been a country that's been producing uh, interesting and um, unique animation itself. Um, a lot of this has to do with the history of the country and the, the people that live there and, and art imitating life and life imitating art. The up-and-comers in Estonia are really making a, a strong headway in carving a style and an aesthetic for themselves. Does Estonia have a strong government support or something? I, mean, I just wondered why Estonia and why now? They are supported quite well. They have two main studios over there, Nuku Film and Eunice Film. One of them is a, a 2D animated studio and the the other is a, a puppet studio. Quite a small country, and to have two big main studios producing art is is a boon to their animated economy. You'll find that if you are a filmmaker and you have a good idea and you go for funding, you, you will get it. That's the response that I've had to that question. One of the reasons that makes Annie's program, I think, so timely and so interesting is that geopolitics of Eastern Europe. A lot of the animation that was made behind the Iron Curtain that cut Europe in half for so much of last century carried with it lots and lots of really interesting coded political social statements made by people that were in their own way trying to discuss what life was like behind the Iron Curtain without putting themselves in a position where they'd be mining salt for the rest of their life. (laughs) Um, And each one of those um, cultures produced their own community of filmmakers. They each had their own slightly different agendas. Estonia was just that much further removed from the control of the USSR. They were able to kind of weave in more sophisticated, more interesting social comment into their films. And that's that's really the basis of the reputation for Estonian animation. But the Estonians have gone on and, and created this new version of Estonia and out of that is this new generation of Estonian animators who people of my age that you know loved all the older pre-independence Estonian animation wondered whether this new generation of people would be able to maintain that uniqueness that quirkiness you know this is one of the really great reasons that I asked Annie to go in and, and investigate this new generation. Annie is a, you know, she's a digital native. She connects much better with this new rising generation of Estonian animators. And and as a result, it's come back with a program very different than the one that I would have put together. And I just just think it's a, a real window on where this is all going. The art form that is animation in Estonia is still developing. It's still going to go in new directions and and take on new forms and new stories and narratives. It's, It's got places to go from here. I mean, I look at the uh, the rise of the big budget animation companies. I look at Pixar and I look at DreamWorks and people like yep. that. And I wonder, yep. I mean, are they good or bad for the art form, do you think? You grow up with these big name companies, your Disneys, your DreamWorks, your Pixars, and they're sort of a dream goal when you're 
first learning to animate and wouldn't it be wonderful to work with these companies and wouldn't it be wonderful to produce this type of work. Then when you go through the process of becoming an animator and mm. um, learning how much time and emotional effort you need to put into your work, you sort of start having a bit of a shift and uh, want to maybe hold on to the work that you do and when you work for a big company like that you have to let go of all creative control i've never seen a badly animated pixar film i don't think you'll ever see it but th but there's a lot of just wretched animation out there that, that makes, is true. makes it into the hard top cinemas yeah. and there doesn't seem to be a lot of discernment within the the broader audience picking out the good or the bad the animation is unique among the art forms in that there is very little broad community understanding of what animation really is i grew up loving bugs bunny cartoons and mickey mouse cartoons and all that kind of stuff and and still do but i would say one simple way of resetting the clock to anybody that's listening just simply google a film called mindscape by jacques Drouin and take on board that six minutes of animation and ask yourself what's this got in common with pixar or what's this got in common with bugs bunny it really only has the technical definition of animation as a common thread so it's a very very broad term you know one of the missions of the animation now festival is to try and maintain a profile for animation as an art form that's the key takeaway i think in all of this the two programmers of this year's animation program for the International Film Festival, Malcolm Turner and Annie Murray. And we've put a copy of the short film Malcolm referred to, Mindscape, by Canadian director Jacques Drouin, on the At The Movies webpage. And now, as they say, for something rather different. Censorship raises its ugly head. One of the interesting culture shifts has been the attitude to so-called freedom of speech. What should be allowed, what should be banned. Fifty years ago, the drivers of the need to ban were conservative forces, leading to the ever-vigilant census office. Well, now it seems to be the liberal progressive communities anxious to shut down material as the debate over hate speech and fake news hots up. Well, this is one of the themes of an Australian documentary called Censored, in which filmmaker Sari Braithwaite investigated clips cut from films by the Australian censors between 1958 and 1971. Sari Braithwaite, welcome to the show. And why that particular time frame? That period, 1958 to 1971, was the archive that I stumbled across. I went into the archives looking for paperwork about censorship and then came across this enormous audiovisual archive of all the clips that the Australian government had cut out of imported films during that time. But it was a kind of striking period in Australian film censorship history because 1971 was this time of huge reform when censorship laws in Australia really changed quite fundamentally. So it's a bit over a decade of time where cutting scenes out of cinema was at its peak and then it really shifted with legal reform in the 70s. What was your initial intention when you decided to look at what got cut from these films? As someone who works in the arts and as a filmmaker, you kind of go into a collection like this expecting to kind of feel aligned with the filmmaker and artistic freedom and freedom of expression. So I think my goal was that I thought I was going to create this cathartic work where 
we could see all the bits that had been denied and that that would be a wonderful experience to see really important parts of cinema history that were denied and that it would be a liberating experience. But the thing about taboos is that some lift and then others replace them. And that's the thing that really struck me about this collection. The things that bothered me about this collection was not necessarily what the censors were bothered about. It bothered me from a sensibility very much of this time and of right now. Your film is entirely made up of clips cut from these films, but you become overwhelmed by just the nastiness of it. It's so violent. Definitely. And I think that that's the thing, you know, when I've talked to people about this project, the response is often you couldn't really be disturbed by stuff that is this old. And I think that's one of the key ideas in the film is that one clip alone is innocuous and nothing, it just washes over you. And if you watch it in a film today, you probably wouldn't even pay attention to it. But it's the sheer quantity and the repetition of the image. It's not about being anti-sex and violence and being a wowser in the old school sense. It's about how are sex and violence constantly portrayed in the same way. So it's kind of a subtle distinction there, which does, it gets to you after time. These films that you were looking at, I mean, the, the original films that from which these things were cut, were they mainstream films or were they more the sort of notorious grindhouse films? I wanted to make sure that I was showing a mix of films. You know, when you look at a collection this large, you're talking about all the content that was coming in. So you've got a mix of art house films and films from the canon, Hollywood blockbusters, and then definitely a lot of B-grade and a bit of grindhouse exploitation types of films. So there's a whole mix of that coming through. And so I was very cautious in the edit to try and show that everyone was doing this in different ways, that hmm. you know, all these different genres and styles of film, whether you're talking about high art or low art, which I know can get quite contentious. If you're talking about that gamut, it, there wasn't that much of a distinction when we were talking about the image itself. One of the ways in which you end the film is a lot of shots of people looking. And in fact, I found that some of the more shocking parts of the film, the clips that got cut out, was just seeing mostly men looking at these horrible events and clearly getting aroused and excited by it. It was one of those incidental parts of the collection is that wherever there's graphic material that was cut for the censors for their various reasons, there was often spectators and that became this thing that I noticed in the collection that nothing was cut because people were watching but it just happened to be that a lot of stuff was cut and people were watching and so that was felt to be a really powerful way of exploring that idea of who we are as an audience and what we watch and what we look at sometimes it washes over us and we don't think about it and sometimes we are more critical viewers and that felt like a really important way to try and find resolution in a collection which was really difficult to try and find any structure to. How we actually define censorship is much broader than just what the government's doing. It's also about what we're making and what we're viewing. That's the thing that, that I think has been really interesting about this project in general is your expectations and your ideas about this stuff, how it kind of subtly gets turned well subtly and in big ways it gets turned and it's been one of those things that I definitely have wrestled with and thought about a lot. 
That's Australian documentary maker Sari Braithwaite, and her film Censored is part of the New Zealand International Film Festival. Check their webpage for details. And you can find extended versions of all today's interviews on our website, radionz.co.nz forward slash at the movies. Well, that brings this week's show to a close. I'm Simon Morris, and I hope you'll join me at the movies same time next week. Music.